It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. I'm uh, grateful for the welcome that I've received already. Very grateful for uh, the long-term friendship that I've had with Nick. And it is a joy to worship the Lord together with you on this Lord's Day. Please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job 42. We'll be looking at the first verses of that chapter. And as you're turning there, I'd like to read a text from the book of James. I was so glad in God's providence that we read several sections of the letter of James. I want to read one section more as we prepare to look at Job chapter 42. This is what God's Word says in the book of James. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And he highlights one in particular. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And now to our text this morning, Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Remember, as you listen and follow along, and as I, as I read, this is God's word. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's pray together. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings you've given to us. We thank you for the blessing of this year day. We thank you for the blessing of having life and health. We know that in you we live and move and have our being. And as we come to your word this morning, we thank you for it. We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word. Father, we know that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and that your spirit works through your word to do your work. Father, we ask this morning that your spirit might do his work wielding his sword in our midst, that we might be convicted of sin and trained in righteousness, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask that you would do this and in so doing that you would glorify your son And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. One of the subjects about which the Bible speaks the most is the subject of suffering. Now that might come to you as a comfort or it might come to you as a warning. It it might sound like bad news that the Bible has so much to say about suffering because what that means, of course, is that suffering is a part of all of our lives and therefore the Bible has to instruct us in this topic. But I think it's because of the Bible's instruction that we can take great comfort. Whatever it is that we go through, whatever it is that you may be going through, whatever suffering you may be enduring, rest assured, the Bible speaks a great deal about suffering. 
I want to outline a few of the points that the Bible makes about the subject of suffering before looking at this book, this book of Job, which is in particular focused on the the, the idea of suffering. The Bible, for instance, says this, that suffering, we learn, is to be expected, both because we live in a fallen world and because we live in a world that naturally hates the gospel. We, we suffer because of the fallenness of the world, because of the curse that lies on all mankind, and then we suffer sometimes because of the world's antipathy for the gospel. Uh, the Bible says this to us. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that there is a time to weep and there is a, a time to mourn, but there's also a time to laugh and a time to dance. It's part of the normal course of life that we will have times of mourning. And there's a sense in which the Bible teaches us we need to embrace those things. Peter teaches us that we may endure suffering because of our Christian faith. In fact, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in fact, goes so far as to say that we should expect to suffer. He says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So both because of the nature of the world as it is and because of the world's opposition to the gospel, we should expect suffering. But the Bible tells us more than that. The Bible also tells us that suffering actually showcases the reality of our faith the genuineness of our faith. Uh, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, in this suffering, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then he says, here's the reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's something we need to think about. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer, and we should recognize that one of the purposes of suffering is that the genuineness of our faith in Christ may be displayed to all those who are watching. And in fact, you've probably found this to be the case as you've watched someone else endure great suffering as a Christian and to stand up, bear up under that trial, and you've You've realized, again, how real these things are, how genuine their faith is, and how, how real the work of Christ is in our lives. And Paul says that actually suffering can not only display the genuineness of your faith, but also it is through suffering that God often works powerfully. Here's the way he puts it in 2 Corinthians 12 as he asks the Lord to remove this thorn in his flesh. And the Lord says this, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on to say this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That, of course, is counterintuitive teaching. We, we think that when we're suffering, we're at a place where God's power isn't at work in and through us. But Paul says the opposite. He says, in fact, that the Lord instructed him directly that his power is perfected in the weaknesses that Paul and that we to this day endure. The Bible also tells us that God is with us in our suffering. He says that very clearly in the Psalms. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, him from them all. 
the, 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 the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 43, though you go through these waters, the Lord will be with you. And then the Bible, of course, also tells us this, that God grows us through our suffering. Not only is he with us, not only does it prove the genuineness of our faith and, and display his power, but in fact, he causes us to grow. This is what James says at the beginning of his book. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Bible teaches many things about suffering. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that it's something we experience on a regular basis. And if you haven't endured suffering, no doubt you've watched others who have endured great suffering. That's, that's the normal course of life, the Bible says. When we come to the book of Job, of course, there's an additional layer of complexity to Job's situation. If you've read through the book of Job, you know the context of Job 42. At the beginning of the book of Job, of course, God singles out Job. We see that Satan presents himself before the Lord, and the Lord actually singles out Job and says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job, it says, was a righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil. And Satan had not considered Job, and the Lord told him to consider Job, and Satan actually takes away almost everything that Job possesses. The Lord allows him to take away his children and his wealth, all these great things that the Lord had blessed Job with. And at the end of all that, of course, Job still worships the Lord, and he still serves the Lord. And so Satan goes back and says, well, of course he does, because you haven't allowed me to attack his health. And so the Lord says, you can go after that as well, only you may not kill him. And so Job suffers even more. His suffering of loss is compounded by his suffering of sickness. And then you know what happens in the book. Job's friends arrive to comfort him. And at first they're silent. But then after that they begin to analyze Job's situation. And the, and the book, the bulk of the book, is really a series of dialogues between Job and his friends. His friends think that what must be going on is that Job is being punished for some kind of terrible sin. They recognize that God is holy and just, and they see Job suffering, and so they assume that they know why Job is suffering. And Job consistently, throughout the book, denies that that's what's going on. In fact, Job not only maintains that his friends are wrong, but he actually evidences great faith. We have these great statements of faith from Job in the midst of his suffering. He says things like this in Job 19, 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take a stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God. Job not only had faith in God, he had an understanding of the bodily resurrection. He looked forward to it. Look forward to his Redeemer taking his stand on the earth. But also in the midst of that great faith that Job shows, he does have questions. And at one point, he actually asks for an audience with God. In Job 23, he says this, Oh, that I, might, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. 
I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn from the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Perhaps these kinds of thoughts have entered your mind. You say to yourself, I have a few questions for God having endured this suffering or having watched someone else endure it. Well, that's essentially what Job says in the middle of the book. Now, God graciously does appear to Job. He gives Job the audience that he asked for. But it doesn't go the way Job expected it to go. In Job chapter 40, the Lord actually says to Job, Job, now you gird up your loins like a man. I'm going to ask some questions of you first. And then, as you know, God asks Job a series of questions that he has no answers for. They're they're basic questions about creation, and some of them are more advanced than others, but none of them even reaches the level of the complexity of suffering. And the Lord shows Job his ignorance by asking him all these questions. He asks Job about the, the, the water cycle. He asks Job about where certain creatures go in the winter. And, and Job, Job has no answers. He's bereft of answers before the Lord. And it's as if what the Lord is doing for him is he's saying to Job, Job, you asked me about something that is far beyond what you even have the ability to comprehend. One of the ways I've often thought about the book of Job up to this point is it would be as if one of my children came to me in, in first grade. And if, if you knew my daughters, you would know this, this couldn't have happened. But, but if one of my daughters came to me in first grade and said, Dad, I, I demand an answer. I demand that you teach me trigonometry right now. Well, what would I maybe say to her? I might have said to one of my daughters, had she ever asked that, I might have said, well, do you know your multiplication tables? Do you know how to do division? In other words, what I would be proving is that that demand for an answer on advanced matters was inappropriate because the basics weren't even there. That's essentially what God does with Job. And that brings us to Job 42, the text in question, a long context, but it's important to know what Job is responding to in Job 42. What we see in Job 42, 1 through 6 is really this. Job makes two declarations, and then Job gives us an example. Two declarations and then an example. The first declaration comes in verse 1. At the end of all of it, at the end of all of Job's suffering, he has not received an answer, and yet what he says here is true. He says this, first of all, he makes a declaration about God. Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Bible teaches us that this is essential to remember, especially in the context of suffering. The absolute sovereignty of God. Notice what Job doesn't say. Job doesn't say, I know that you're loving and you had nothing to do with this. I know that you didn't want it to turn out this way, but it has turned out this way. No, Job says the opposite of that. Job says, Lord, I know 
that you can do all things. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I would maintain that this is actually the first thing we have to keep in mind when considering our own personal suffering. The sovereignty of God over all things. It's interesting, you know, if you look at the scriptures, what you see is that at key points, key turning points in the narrative of Scripture, this note is struck by the people of God. You might think, for instance, of Solomon building the temple, this great building in glory to the Lord. What does Solomon say? Solomon says as he dedicates the temple, Lord, this temple, this building can't contain you. Heaven and highest heavens can't contain you. And you, you can do all things. Or we might think about the psalmist who says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He does according to his own will. The prophet Isaiah gives these words from the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Again and again throughout the scriptures, when people are confronted with the reality of God, whatever their situation, they come to this conclusion, they know this to be true. You are the Lord. You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the book of Daniel, and it's the example of Nebuchadnezzar. You may remember what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night that he doesn't understand, and so he asks for Daniel to come and interpret it, and Daniel does interpret it, and the interpretation Daniel gives is this, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be judged by God for your pride, and the way that God is going to carry out that judgment is you are going to eat grass like the cattle for seven years. And probably about six months later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking along the great city of Babylon and he utters these words, Is this not Babylon the great, which I with my hands have built? And as those words come out of his mouth, immediately the Lord strikes him down. And in fact, it happens exactly as Daniel said it would. He eats grass like the cattle for seven years. Then at the end of that time, the perspective in Daniel moves from the third person account to a first person account. Nebuchadnezzar himself speaks and he says this about the Lord. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then the text says, at that time my reason returned to me. The absolute sovereignty of God. You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. There are some people in the world today who believe that the world is run by all kinds of competing gods or competing powers. Uh, but this, this is the God of the Bible, absolutely sovereign over all that happens. 
And that ought to be a comfort for us, but not only a comfort, that has to be the bedrock of our understanding of God when it comes to our suffering. And notice that Job still doesn't have an explanation. In fact, we reach the end of the book and we know much more about why Job suffered than Job himself ever knows. And yet Job does know this, that God is in control, that God is sovereign over all things. I remember very vividly the morning worship service when the man who had been my pastor in college stood up and announced this uh, diagnosis that he had received of liver cancer. I believe it was about six or seven weeks from that moment, maybe, maybe even less than that, when he died. It was very sudden. And when he stood up to lead in the call to worship and to give an update, he said something like this, if, if there were something that was brought into your life, uh, some circumstance that was brought upon you, w- would you change it? And he said, if you, if you would, you'd make it worse because God has designed these things. He's in control of all things. And he's good and wise, certainly wiser than any of us may be. And he said that in the case of a diagnosis, and Job says this, after having lost everything, I know that you can do all things. Well, that's the first declaration. It's a declaration about God. But Job then moves on to make another declaration, a very significant one for us today as we think about suffering, and it's a, it's a declaration not just about God and God's sovereignty, but about human understanding. Now, now, he does this in a way that is somewhat subtle. We have to be careful as we walk through these verses to see exactly what Job is doing, because if you look carefully in your Bibles in verse 3, what you'll see is that verse 3 is actually a quote that Job is giving. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And that's not just Job speaking. That is Job repeating something that has already been said. And we see the same thing in verse 4 when he says, Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. What Job is doing in both of these cases, both at the beginning of verse 3 and then at the beginning of verse 4, is he's quoting from things that had been said to him earlier in the book. And what he's saying at the beginning of verse 3 is he's quoting from God's own words uh, back in chapter 40. And he's also quoting from words that were said to him in chapter 38. And the essential meaning of these words is that Job was asked by God. He was, in a sense, told by God and told as well by God's servant, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? In other words, Job... As you're talking, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know all the details of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And Job essentially says that at the end of verse 3. That's Job's own words. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, Job's responding to the question. He's repeating it again. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And he says, that that was me. I uttered things that I didn't understand. I spoke of things that I didn't really fully know. In other words, Job's second declaration is not about God, but it's about the limits of human understanding. Job says, I didn't fully understand what I was speaking about. I I I thought I had 
access to all the information, but, but I didn't. You know, the verse that John Calvin, the great commentator, would quote more than any other verse, at least according to my reckoning, is from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And it goes like this. Moses said, the hidden things are of the Lord, but the things revealed are for us and for our children forever that you may observe all the words of this law. In other words, what Moses is saying is there are hidden things. There are things, there are things in this world, particularly related to the circumstances of your life, that are in the category of hidden things that are of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we throw up our hands in despair because the second half of Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the things revealed are for us and for our children forever. In other words, we, we, have, we have plenty of revelation from God. Our Bibles have plenty for us to learn. And you could spend multiple lifetimes learning and teaching the Scriptures. In fact, you've probably encountered this. The most godly people I know, the people who have studied the Bible most carefully their whole lives, when they get to the end of their lives, they say something like, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. There are immense depths to the Word of God, and those things are for us and for our children forever. But having said that, there are hidden things that are of the Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I am fully known. I remember a week in my life, this was probably ten years ago now, and in that week I had two parents speak with me about their sons, both of whom were around the same age at the time, about 12 years old. And in the case of one parent, they went into the week thinking that their child's seemingly dire diagnosis had actually changed. It looked like it was going to be fatal, but now perhaps he'd turned a corner. The same week I heard from another parent same age child, and it was the opposite. They, their seemingly healthy child was diagnosed with something that looked as if it could be very serious. And within one week, within one week, those things had completely flipped. Uh, the, the parents of the child who thought they had turned a corner for the better learned that, in fact, it was just temporary, and their son died not too long after that. And the second one learned that it was a false alarm. The doctors thought it was the worst, and it turned out to be something benign. Well, well, none of us can explain that. None of us can understand all the reasons why those kinds of things happen. Why is that? Because there are hidden things that are of the Lord, and we see now in a mirror dimly. When we look at the book of Job, Job certainly knows more than his friends. He knows that their diagnosis is wrong. And in a sense, one of the problems that his friends have is they think they understand all of it completely. And Job knows they don't. But Job says, even though I knew more than they knew, and the text tells us that in all of this Job did not sin, but even though he knew more than they knew, 
Nonetheless, Job says, I I was talking about something about which I did not know. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So Job's second declaration is about the limits of human understanding. And you'll never be able to wrap your mind around the Bible's teaching regarding suffering without taking on board these two truths. God is sovereign, and our knowledge is limited as creatures. Oh, sometimes I know in retrospect you can look back at something that happened and see how God brought it about for your good, and you've learned things from it, and you've had opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have had. Sometimes that happens. God in His grace sometimes makes these things clear, but not always. It may be the case that there are things that we go to our grave not understanding because the hidden things are of the Lord. Well, Job repeats that essentially in verse 4 when he says, Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Those are the words that the Lord had said to Job. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Now listen to me. And that leads us, I think, to Job's example. The book of James tells us to look at the example of Job. And I think we see the example of Job most clearly in these verses. First of all, we see Job come to these right conclusions. But look at how Job responds in verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, what do we see in Job's life, in Job's example? Well, one thing he's, we certainly see about him is that he has a humble and attentive heart. He's now, he's now in listening mode rather than in talking mode. He knows that he has gone up to the limits of everything he can understand, and in fact, well beyond what he could understand. And so now what's he doing? He's decided that his posture in this case must be a posture of listening to what God has said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We see again and again this call throughout the Scriptures. Remember that great call to worship in Psalm 95. You know, there was a period in Jewish history where Psalm 95 was read at the beginning of every Sabbath day. And you remember what Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. It begins with a call to worship. But then it's a call to listen to what God has said in His Word. You remember how the writer to Hebrews pulls the thread of Psalm 95 throughout that great treatise, the beginning of which he says, God has spoken in these last days through His Son. And then at the end of that book, he says, Therefore, do not refuse Him who is speaking. Our attitude, our posture in following the example of Job must be the posture of listening to what God has said. It's one of the great tensions in Scripture. It's one of the great dividing lines in Scripture uh, from the very beginning chapters. We, We see in the book of Genesis that whenever someone looks at something and makes a decision based on what they see, they make the wrong decision. That begins with Eve in the garden. She looked at the tree. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. She took it and ate it. 
and this, 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 uh, this, these two ways are, are set up in Genesis. There are those who look and make decisions based on what they see, and then there are those who are hearers, who listen to the Word of God. In the New Testament, the way the writer to Hebrews puts it is this, walk by faith and not by sight. Job has a humble and attentive, a listening heart. When, now when he, he encounters the situation he encounters, the question he asks is, what has God said? And that has to be our posture as Christians. Second, we see that Job is leading a repentant life. In fact, that's the very word he uses in verse 6. I repent in dust and ashes. Job is committed to not only being a hearer of God's word, but being a doer of God's word. Turning from every false way. We know what James says. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. That's one of the most dangerous points in your life, you know, when you, when you sit under the word of God on the Lord's day on Sunday morning and then you leave. It's so easy to be like one who looks in a mirror and forgets what he has seen. What does Job exemplify for us? Well, he's both a hearer and a doer of the Word of God. This is, too, one of the great themes of the book of Job, that wisdom comes from God alone. That's why in the very center of the book, in Job 28, it has this great hymn to wisdom and about wisdom. And at the end of it, it says, where can wisdom be found? Well, well, the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom and depart from evil is understanding. Job has become a humble hearer and an obedient doer. There's something else, of course, in addition to these two declarations and the example of Job, isn't there? Because this book is a great mystery to Job. The events of the book are a great mystery to Job. But if you begin to move forward from Job and look at how Job and the example of Job and the declarations of Job work through the rest of the Scriptures, we see this, that at the heart of human history, there is undeserved suffering that makes possible undeserved blessing. In this book, we see God offer up Job. In the New Testament, we read that God offered up His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news the Bible shouts to us is, is that because a righteous man suffered, the righteous God-man suffered and was handed over by his Father, unrighteous people like us can experience mercy and grace. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And then what does the Bible say? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. See, when we read the book of Job, there are still many questions. But that theme of righteous suffering is so precious in the Scriptures because it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I, and I need to say this to you today. 
that, that Jesus Christ offers himself to sinners. It, it, Jesus says clearly, whoever will come to me, I, I will not cast out. And I will raise him up on the last day. The Bible teaches that there is a, a, a day of judgment coming. And yet, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, was given over and He voluntarily went to the cross so that those who come to Him in faith might be saved. Jesus offers Himself even now. And the Bible says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. It's really... No accident, is it, that when the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is reflecting on the great plan of God and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually quotes from the book of Job. He quotes from a combination of, of verses in Job 35 and in Job 36. And here's what he says as he surveys all of history, looks at his own life, sees how God has been at work bringing about redemption in and through His Son. This is what Paul says. He can say nothing else. And he quotes from Job, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid and then he says this about God for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen let's pray Our great God, we confess our lack of understanding regarding so many things in this world and in our lives. Oh, but we thank you that you are at work to bring about your purposes and that you have worked finally in a redeeming way in and through your Son, the suffering Savior. May we look to Him. May we look to Him in particular when we suffer. But may we look to Him when we consider eternity as the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, we come to You this morning asking that You would do these things in our hearts. And we ask it in His name and for His glory. Amen. Well, if you're able, let's stand and we'll sing together. The words are printed in the bulletin, Jesus, I my cross have taken.
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.